the universal need of humanity is to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Although not everyone will end up with the righteousness of God, not every human being will experience and possess the righteousness of God, that remains the need of every human being to be found in Christ. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Romans, and please find Romans chapter 10. Romans was written to the Christians located in Rome, both Jews and Gentiles. And this letter is Paul's fullest work on the gospel. And our series description is that Romans gives to us the undeserved, the unmatched, and the unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. We know it's a work of grace. It's undeserved. We know it's unmatched. There's no greater news than the good news of Jesus. And we know it's unstoppable. The book of Romans and the rest of the New Testament explains to us how the, the good news is going abroad. Jesus told us that the church would be built and nothing would prevail against it. Because Paul outlines the grace of the gospel, the hope and superiority of the gospel message, and the advancement of the gospel to the ends of the world. This is the good news. The chapters that are noted and divided for us as 9, 10, and 11 are used to provide a defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter 9 is an aggressive explanation of God's sovereign choice in those whom he elects to salvation. We mentioned last week that Paul shifts, if you will, in chapter 9, verse 30, and we begin to see the other side of the same coin, the necessity of an individual's faith in order to experience salvation. Now, if you are, you are curious what I'm referring to in using that word salvation, I'm simply talking about being saved from the penalty of sin. This passage before us includes the way to experience that salvation, namely through Jesus Christ. We've already sung and prayed and read of that this morning. If you are a Christian, you know that already. And this passage then calls you to action, specifically toward those who are not yet believers. Please follow along as I read from the book of Romans. I'm going to begin with our text from last week and then go in through our text for this morning. So Romans chapter 9, verse number 30. Paul asks this question, what shall we say then that Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteous did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, or will not be dissatisfied, will not be disappointed in any way. Paul continues, chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. 
For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Our zeal for righteousness is good, but not enough. God's righteousness is enough. God's righteousness is final. God's righteousness is available. Do you have the righteousness of God? If not, you'll never be satisfied. You'll always be disappointed. Paul continues to serve us well by by letting us know his own experience with those who are not yet in Christ. He He begins by giving to us a posture towards those that are faithless. What his attitude is towards those who have not yet come to faith in Jesus. We see it in verse number one. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This is deeply personal for the Apostle Paul. Because those who were stumbling over the stumbling stone were his fellow Jews. They were his kinsmen according to the flesh, as he had called them earlier. Now we can relate to this, can't we? If we have any in our family or close friends who are without faith, we can understand Paul's personal deep longing. It was especially poignant because they were Jews, God's special chosen people. The question from chapter 9, verse 6, is is still on the table in in Paul's discussion. Had the word of God failed? Why was Israel still not believing? Jesus preached about a judgment that would come to unbelieving Israel. All of that was on Paul's mind, and that's why we kind of get a peek into his posture toward those that still do not profess Christ as their Savior. He specifically has a posture of being burdened for them. He talks about his heart's desire. He's relaying to us the internal longing that he is personally experiencing. Paul is grieved. He's grieved that his fellow Jews had not believed the Messiah that had come to earth and lived among them. Paul is deeply connected to to these people and and, and invested. In fact, we can remember how he voiced that at the beginning of chapter 9. In verses 2 and 3, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And then he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now that was... Paul speaking with hyperbole, but regardless, we see over and over and over again throughout the New Testament that Paul has a profound and pressing burden for his fellow Israelites. Paul wasn't dismissing it away. He wasn't turning his back on their faithlessness. He wasn't ignoring the reality that they could face condemnation for all of eternity. He understood that there are eternal consequences for anyone who fails to believe in Christ. And specifically, precisely, that understanding gave him a burden for the lost. The deep longing in his heart was for them to be saved. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if that deep longing is present in our hearts as it should be. Sometimes I wonder if we are more grieved about less important matters than we are about 
the eternal soul of a loved one or a friend? Do you grieve more about someone's political preferences than you do about their status as an unbeliever? Do you grieve more about someone's lifestyle choices than you do about their status as an unbeliever? Parents, do you grieve more about your child's will being submitted to your will than you do about their status as an unbeliever? Paul's posture towards the faithless began with a burden, a deep longing in his heart. We also see that his posture is is represented by prayer. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they be saved. He was asking God to do something supernatural for the faithless Israelites. The same supernatural work that God had done in his own life. Paul was asking God to save individuals. When, when he says save, he's talking about eternal salvation. Saved from facing God's anger for their sin. Saved from, from an eternal torment in hell. Saved from the punishment that they deserved because they had sinned against God. That's something that every human being needs to be saved from because every human being has sinned against God. Paul was asking God to save these people that did not have faith in Jesus. At this point in our study, it's important that we make a connection back to chapter 9. Especially important in helping us understand and practice attention that the Bible presents. In the previous chapter, Paul taught us much about God's sovereignty in the salvation of man. Remember what we learned? Isaac was chosen over Ishmael. Jacob was chosen over Esau. God had mercy on Moses, but he hardened Pharaoh's hearts. That God is the potter, humanity is the clay. That God has compassion on whomever he wills, and that God hardens whomever he wills. We learned that nobody, nobody experiences salvation unless God has chosen them to experience salvation. Paul taught all of that, but notice that none of that changed Paul's posture towards the unbelieving. He's still praying for them. He's still longing for them to be saved. Paul doesn't say, well, God has mercy on some and not on others. I can't do anything about that. We don't find Paul being cold and indifferent about his fellow Israelites and their eternity. Not at all. Instead, the Apostle Paul remains burdened for those without faith. And he continues to call on God to save them. He spends his life, he gives himself to the ministry of evangelizing the lost. That's what he's spending his life for. So Christian, just a quick reminder and a word of warning. Don't misunderstand the theology of God's sovereignty. Don't abuse the theology of God's sovereignty in salvation. God's sovereignty does not cancel out the Great Commission. God's sovereignty does not remove the call for us to pray for the lost. God's sovereignty does not cancel the sting of knowing that people could enter into a Christless eternity. God's election of people to salvation is His knowledge, not ours. 
we don't know who he's going to save. It's not our duty to determine who is chosen. Our duty is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to anyone who will hear it and to pray that God will turn their hearts and they will be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. One more example, lest we fall prey to the faulty reasoning that we don't need to pray because God has already chosen. While the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was dying as he hung on the cross, he was also praying for unbelievers, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. The Son was praying to the Father, asking for him to save unbelievers. So Paul is following Christ's example here in Romans 10, and he prays for Israel to be saved. The word praying, it means pleading. It means entreating God with persistence. It's a faithful, and it's a consistent, it's a repeated calling out to God. From 1980 to 1996, my childhood years, I attended a weekly prayer meeting at Calvary Baptist Church in Alexandria, Virginia. I didn't have too much of a choice about being there. My dad was the pastor, so I had to, you know, I was at prayer meeting every week. There was an elderly member who taught one of the children's Sunday school classes. Her name was Geneva Halsey, and she attended those same Wednesday prayer meetings that I attended. And every week before the kids split to go to their class, we had a time where people shared prayer requests, and she would raise her hand, and with a quiver in her voice, she would simply say, Richard. Just gave the name Richard. We had never met Richard, but we knew the need. Richard was a nephew who was faithless. Miss Halsey's nephew, not a believer. He did not believe in Christ. Miss Halsey didn't say, well, hope he's part of the elect, and then walk away. She wept for Richard. She begged God to save Richard. She was faithful to consistently call on God to save her nephew. That's the posture that we understand from the Apostle Paul has for unbelieving Israel. Our prayer lives, our prayer lives reveal the desires of our hearts. Do you, do I have a desire to see others saved? There are people in our workplace, in our families, in our athletic teams that we are on that don't know about Jesus. Does your heart long for them to be saved? Here at Harvest Bible Church, we have a midweek service that we call Bible study and prayer meeting. Pretty original, isn't it? It's because we study the Bible and we meet to pray. We call, we call it that because we pray. Part of our prayer time is to ask God to save unbelieving acquaintances that we have. You're invited to join us as we pray for God to do that. There are 3.2 billion people on our planet that don't know the name Jesus. I mean, they haven't heard his name yet. Some of those 3.2 billion live in Indonesia, and they are on the, the, the island of Batam, and they are called the Real Malayu people. On Saturday nights at 8 p.m., you are invited to join a 30-minute Zoom prayer meeting 
that includes people praying for these faithless people group in Indonesia. Thousands who have never heard of Jesus. Paul had a deep concern for the unbelieving Israelites. He begged God to save them. We also see his, in his posture, a posture of humility. Verse 1 says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Paul acknowledges their zeal. He acknowledges that Israel is doing some good things in their behavior. He didn't dismiss it away as if it were, as if it were nothing. He didn't act as if they were not busy. Rather, he gave them credit where credit was due. He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Now, we will hear shortly that he gives to them a warning about their zeal. But he doesn't, he, he doesn't um, in his role as, as an evangelizer, he doesn't just roll in with his gospel tank to blow them away with his superiority. We don't see that at all. Instead, he acknowledges good in them. This probably comes from his own experience and him remembering that he was no better than they. His humility is generated with the realization that he was a sinner, even considering himself the chief of sinners. Paul understood that he did not deserve salvation any more than the people for whom he was praying. How about you, brothers and sisters? Are you willing to give credit where credit is due? More importantly, what is the condition of your heart to those who are not yet believing? Humble or proud? Are you deceived into thinking that somehow you deserved to be saved and they don't? How illogical is that line of thinking? Humanly speaking, one of the greatest helps of our evangelizing is to enter with a spirit of humility by reminding ourselves that but for the grace of God, so go we. So this is the posture that we should imitate toward those who are not yet believing, being burdened for them, praying for them, and being humble with them. But Paul moves on in this passage, and he, gives, he issues that warning at the end of verse 2. He says, or verse 2 says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And then in verse 3 he says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Here's the warning about being zealous. Paul understood all about zeal, didn't he? He was I don't know. The Apostle Paul was like zeal on steroids. He was zealous. Listen to how he described himself in Philippians chapter 3 to the church at Philippi. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He said, I also have reason to have confidence in my flesh. Paul had been a member of the most zealous Jewish sect. Have you ever been around someone that was zealous about something? Maybe they're zealous about their yard work, zealous about brushing their teeth, or any life task. 
Zealous is usually a good character trait, but sometimes zeal can be negative instead of positive. I read this description in thinking about that this week. Somebody who loses, a description of somebody who is zealous. Somebody who loses sight of where he is going, but redoubles his effort to get there. He is full of zeal, but he has no knowledge or understanding of that for which he is zealous. It's like when I'm stuck in traffic in a, in a parking lot. I don't, end up, end up, I don't care if I end up going in the wrong direction as long as I'm moving. I just want to go somewhere and get out of the traffic, right? I'm zealous about getting out of, of bumper to bumper. Paul warns us about going the wrong way with, with our zeal. The warning is it's possible to be zealous for God and for righteousness and yet to be unsaved. It's possible to be zealous for God and for righteousness and not be God's child. There are people doing good things and good work that align with what God wants. There are people who volunteer at pregnancy centers in an attempt to persuade women not to abort. Well, that lines up with God's righteousness, with God's care for life as he's the the giver of life. And yet some of those volunteers may not truly trust Jesus as their Savior. There are priests in the Roman Catholic churches that live moral lives and, and might even be considered zealous in their lifestyle. But many of them don't understand that their works are not what saves them. You see the point? Just being zealous doesn't make you a Christian. A Christian pursues what is right, but pursuing what is right does not make you a Christian. A Christian pursues what is right, but pursuing what is right does not make you a Christian. The distinguishing line among all humans is not between those who have zeal and those who do not. The distinguishing line between between humanity is those who have faith and those who do not. The Israelites were ignorant about the righteousness of God. They did not submit to God's righteousness because they were too busy to establish, seeking to establish their own righteousness. They did not have the spiritual understanding that comes with a relationship with God. Their knowledge was all academic and superficial. Are you too busy seeking to establish your own righteousness that you don't have time to submit to God's? Is your zeal misplaced? Is your zeal in your righteousness instead of God's? People can be zealous for Sunday school and for church programs and for connection groups and for scripture scripture memory and be zealous for a lot of good things and yet remain unregenerate. There are churches that put the emphasis on doing versus believing. Rules don't make you a Christian. A relationship with God makes you a Christian. Zeal is not enough, friends. Zeal must be based on knowledge. Zeal that does not include the proper understanding is just fanaticism. Or we could even say it could be terrorism. Lack of knowledge is connected to a lack of faith. Listen to Paul's own testimony in 1 Timothy 1. I thank him who has given me strength with Christ Jesus our Lord because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, 
a persecutor, an insolent opponents, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So the whole time that he was acting out his, his zealous work, he was acting in unbelief. Perhaps as we think about Romans 10 and, and Israel's unbelief, the saddest part of these zealous Israelites is that they thought they knew God. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah said. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Or what the psalmist said in Psalm 95. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their own hearts. They have not known my ways. Or what we read in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 15. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. In vain, in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. God had called Israel over and over through the law, through the prophets, through Christ himself. Israel didn't have faith because they were still boasting in their own righteousness instead of God's. They were still seeking to establish their own righteousness. Their religious practices gave them confidence that they were more holy than they were. Therefore, they didn't think that they were in need of a Messiah, the one who came for them. They didn't feel a need for a Messiah to give them deliverance for sin. They only wanted a Messiah to give them deliverance from Rome. God was rejecting Israel because Israel was rejecting him. Friends, there is a warning here. The distinguishing line among all humans is not between those who have zeal and those who do not. Rather, the distinguishing line is between those who have faith and those who do not have, have faith. If you are without Christ, it is because you are rejecting Christ. He will not refuse you. He says, come to me. Paul offers to us an example of what our posture should be toward those who are not yet believing. He says, be burdened, be prayerful, be humble. He gives this warning to the zealous yet faithless people. And that zeal is no substitute for faith. And then in verse 4, it closes out this section where Paul reminds us about a promise for the faithless. Look at verse 4, he says, For Christ, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So this, this verse communicates a couple of eternal promises. First, he says, there is a better option to your attempts at righteousness. You're seeking to establish, establish your own righteousness. You're seeking to do what's right and to, to earn your way to God, to appease God's anger for your sin. There's a better way than that because you know that that's going to fail. And the second promise that we see in verse 4 is that it's not too late. He's talking to, to, about the, the faithless of Israel. 
So isolating God's sovereign choice from the believer's personal faith, it, it presumptuously separates what God has united. The law was given to point toward the righteousness of God. We need the law so that we can see the perfection of God. And we see the perfection of God and we compare ourselves to Him and how far we see how far we fall short of that. We say, wow, God is God. But look at how many times I've broken God's law. I could never attain the law. I could never obey the law. And so when we see the law that, that points to the righteousness of God, we run to the cross. We run looking for grace. We run looking for the one who has made an end to the law for righteousness sake because he has perfectly fulfilled the law. Paul tells us that Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness. That means that Christ ended the law as a way of righteousness. One pastor said it this way, Christ's work shows that the law as a way of righteousness is ended so that faith may be seen as the way of righteousness. Think about the finality of this promise. Think about what the finality of this promise means for you. No more striving to earn God's favor. No more of the necessity to, to strive for self-righteousness. Christian, lay down your self-righteousness. Lay down all of the attempts of trying to appease God for the wrongs that you have done. The promise to the faithless is this. For everyone who believes, Christ will be the end of the law for righteousness. There needs to be no more attempting, no more working and failing, no more wondering if you are okay with God, no more doubting your righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. Jesus came and he lived on the earth. Jesus lived with perfection, always, never sinned. Jesus obeyed the law, always, never broke the law. Jesus pleased the Father, always, never was unpleasing. Jesus' blood is sufficient, always, never will it be turned away. That is the promise for all who will believe. There is a beautiful finality in Christ being the end of the law for righteousness. This finality is restful for us as Christians. It offers to us peace of soul. This finality causes us to worship our Christ with gratitude for what he has accomplished on our behalf. This finality urges us and and motivates us and, and pushes us towards doing kingdom work, gospel advancing work. This finality gives us hope in the face of all of the darkness of our failures. And it gives us hope in our burden for those who, who, who we love who do not yet know Jesus. This finality gives us eternal deliverance. But for those who do not believe... The end of self-righteousness never comes. You will always be trying. You will always be dissatisfied. You will always be thirsting, hungry, discontent. Nothing in this world, no performance 
that you could have regarding the law will be enough. Friend, you can't perform well enough to put an end to the requirements of God's law in your life. Will you believe? Will you believe that Christ did that on your behalf? If you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus, he's invited, you're invited to trust Jesus, to believe that through his death, he has satisfied God's anger for your sin. Jesus says, come unto me, and I will give you rest. Rest from trying but failing. Rest from attempts at self-righteousness. Rest for eternal rest for your sinful soul. The universal need of humanity is to be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Do you believe? Moms, teach your kids to be zealous in good works. But teach it according to knowledge. Train your kiddos in the gospel that Jesus has attained, that he has met the Father's, stand, the Father's standard, and that we never can. I can hardly think of a more beautiful thing than the moms in this room to train their children with the truth that doing good will never attain righteousness, but that through Jesus, we will find a finality at our attempts at righteousness. Christian, there are many great opportunities for us in this church and in our families, but don't let zeal, Christian busyness, law-keeping deceive you into thinking that you are right with God. Instead, rest on the one who has put an end to our useless efforts of self-righteousness. Enjoy. Have the peace. Have the rest. Enjoy the righteousness provided to you by the one who is called the righteous one, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray.